WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Since the emerald ash borer beetle was first discovered in Michigan in 2002, it's killed hundreds of millions of ash trees across the continent and cost tens of billions of dollars of damage. To tell us more about this, we're here talking to Robert Stanley. Thanks for joining us today, Robert. May you please tell us more about your research? Thank you very much for having me. My name is Robert Stanley. I'm a current PhD student in chemical biology at the University of Notre Dame, but I'm up here at MSU primarily working with Dr. A. Daniel Jones in the biochemistry and molecular biology department. And my work is focused on understanding the defensive mechanisms deployed by some green ash that are able to fight off the emerald ash borer, as opposed to the many trees that unfortunately succumb to it. Thanks for joining us today, Rob. It's nice to hear from you again. When it comes to the Ashboro, Chelsea was saying it was first identified here in Michigan in 2002. Where exactly does the Ashboro come from? The emerald Ashboro is originally found in Northeast Asia, and it was believed that it came over here to the United States and Canada in wood shipping pallets from dead and dying trees there that it basically burrows into, and that's where the larvae grow. And then it was found in, I believe, the early 2000s near Detroit and Windsor, Ontario. And since that point, it has just continued to spread throughout the United States and Canada. So whenever they come here from Asia, how did the scientists or people in general detect them when they were consuming the ash trees? Also, is there a way to eradicate them? So they're really detected because all of the ash trees in a certain area started dying. And people were wondering what could possibly be behind this sudden ash die-off. And researchers were then able to find these beetles, create different pheromone traps for them, and figure out that that's what was causing these trees to decline. As far as managing the beetles themselves, there's a couple of different methods being deployed. For trees that are in cities and towns, There are pesticides that have been developed that you can pump into the trees every two years and is economically worth it as opposed to removing and replacing the trees. However, that doesn't really work for the forest setting. It's too expensive. Some researchers, including collaborators at MSU, are deploying parasitoids, so small wasps that attack the emerald ash borer larvae and eggs along with native woodpeckers and other native species, puts a dent in the population, but doesn't really stop it. And so that's where our team, our group of collaborators, is focusing on increasing the genetic resistance of the trees so that they can fight off a lot of the emerald ash borers themselves, kind of adding that final piece of the puzzle to control this beetle. That comparison of using the wasps to hunt down those beetles makes me think a lot about the cicadas and the cicada killers that were rampant this past summer. I even saw one in person and I was like, what is that? Before we get lost in the leaves of the ash tree, I just wanted to ask one more question about emerald ash borer. I imagine it looks emerald, right? And also, how big is it? Is it something you can see with the naked eye, or is it really, really small? Yes, exactly like the name suggests. The emerald ash borer is a small green beetle, about half an inch long and an eighth of an inch wide. And they lay little white or reddish brown eggs in the crevices of the ash tree bark, which become larvae hatch and burrow around in the tree, growing, I'd say, around to be around half an inch long. 
Gotcha. That actually makes me think a little bit about the scarabs that would be shown in those mummy movies from back in the 90 and early 2000s. Actually, even more terrifying than that, the emerald ash beetle is kind of like what the scarab beetle you described mixed with like Corona and Ebola for green ash, except they can't even run away. They just kind of get to stand there and get warnings from other trees that the emerald ash borers are coming. And it was kind of ironic because I was teaching a class about forest health and society for some undergraduates. And I was teaching about how this kind of pandemic, a pandemic for plants, was spreading. And it was about the same time that coronavirus was first starting to appear and spread around the world. They are incredibly similar to each other in how they spread around the world, except the main difference is that the trees can't move to socially distance, and the emerald ash borer has a mortality rate more like 99% compared to a much smaller rate than we see with coronavirus today. I completely understand what you're saying and the biosecurity aspect of this. The way we respond to threats in biosecurity is really important. Whether it's plant, human, or animal threats, we should take them all seriously. Speaking about response, when we have a vaccine, our bodies are creating antibodies to help us fight against this virus. Now, whenever these ash trees were interacting with the beetles, do they create any kind of immune response or a way to try and eradicate the beetles to fight against them? So that's actually the crux of my research. I'm trying to figure out how some of these trees are able to respond and defend themselves. So it looks like the big crux of why some of the ash trees are able to defend themselves and mount an appropriate response and why some aren't is that some are really able to, one, detect that they're under attack from the beetles, and then two, that they are able to mount an appropriate defense. It's like if you have somebody in a burning house and you have 10 buckets of different things, Maybe one bucket is nails, one is water, one is gasoline, but you've never seen a fire before. So some people are going to say, oh, I don't really know what this is. I'm nice and warm. I'm fine. Likely make it. Some people may just toss one bucket, toss another bucket. Maybe one person tosses nails, one person tosses gasoline. They're probably not going to make it. But then another person is able to actually figure out that they need to toss water on the fire. They're going to live and they're going to be able to teach others, i.e. pass down their genes. That is the appropriate response to this danger. And so really finding out that it's both detect the beetle attack and also being able to mount an appropriate response to it. And I'm figuring out what kind of genes and what kind of chemicals are behind that appropriate response. Now this is making me think more like these trees are like the Ents from Lord of the Rings and that they're just the grandfathers of these future Ents. But that's just my nerd side coming out. I mean, that's almost exactly correct. With our collaborators in Ohio as well at the U.S. Forest Service Research Station, what they do is they take a couple of these trees, the 0.05% to 1% of trees that survive a little bit longer in the forest against these insects, and they take them and they breed good and good to get better. And so they can continuously, with each generation, improve the trees until they're kind of like super ants that can just kill off 99% of the insect larvae that attack them and don't even have to worry about this problem. And just for reference, for those that don't know about Lord of the Rings, Ents are the mythical creatures that are essentially trees that could walk, talk, and able to defend themselves, which is what made me think of this. So I understand this from a genetic aspect because you're able to graft or breed the trees together. However, you mentioned you're also looking at the chemicals behind this. How are you analyzing the chemicals within the trees? So this is the work that I do up at MSU. 
As the trees are grown in Ohio and challenged with the emerald ash borer, they place emerald ash borer eggs. I'm going to refer to it as EAB going forward. They place these EAB eggs on the tree. The larvae grow. They grow into the tree. They go around and the trees work to fight them off. I then take those woody tissue samples, those pieces of the trunk. I grind them up into a powder, extract them with different solvents, and run them on a mass spectrometer up at MSU. And using that mass spectrometer, which is a machine that allows us to look at the mass of individual compounds, as well as figure out a little bit of their elemental composition, we are able to analyze which compounds in higher concentrations or in lower concentrations in the trees that perform really well against the beetle versus those that perform very poorly against the beetle. Yeah, mass spectrometry is a great way to just identify different compounds like you were saying there. But how do you differentiate between the different compounds that can aid to the defense of the trees against these emerald ashboros? So we're at a very preliminary stage. I am able to use machine learning algorithms and I can throw buzzwords out, but big data sets in order to statistically separate the two groups basically say, teach the machine that these individuals are low performers and these individuals are high performers. And then the machines are able to identify which compounds correlate in higher or lower concentrations with each group. It will be future studies that are able to look at the distribution of these metabolites throughout the tree and can confirm if the trees are using them in targeted specific locations to fight the beetle or if they're all spaced throughout the tree. And additionally, in a time course study to figure out when these chemicals are produced in higher doses in a way that corresponds with insect death. It makes a lot of sense that you have a computational background with this as well, because it's going to be a lot of data to sort through. However, you said that you had samples being sent to you from Ohio. You do research at Michigan State University, and your home state is in Notre Dame, Indiana. So that's three different states. Do you get samples from all these different states or is it only Ohio? And if you do, are there any differences with the samples? So I actually get to uh, truck around in my Honda Accord throughout four different research areas. So the trees are all grown in Ohio and I help the sampling process and I collect all of my samples, store them with liquid nitrogen or on dry ice, depending on what kind of sample they are. I take them back to Notre Dame where we have the machines to process these woody tissues, this stem, into a fine powder. And then I either extract the RNA at Notre Dame and then that's sent off for analysis. And then I work with a group in Tennessee, the University of Knoxville, Tennessee, to do some of the computational analysis of the RNA of the transcriptome. And I also drive up a lot of these samples to MSU, and that's where I do all of the metabolomics work, all the chemical analysis in the, in the phenomenal facility that they have under the tutelage of Dr. A. Daniel Jones. It's really cool that you get to travel for your PhD and go to these different places to work with all of your collaborators. I have some in Japan that I wish I could meet up with, but due to the pandemic, that's unfortunately not possible. One thing you had mentioned earlier made me think about how does the tree actually create these compounds to defend against these beetles? Is it similar to how we create antibodies to fight off viruses like the coronavirus? So to answer your question in two steps, yes, it's kind of similar in that the trees are able to produce all the compounds they need themselves that allow them to defend. They're not looking to have somebody give them an antibiotic or an antiviral they're able to make their own defenses. 
And then two additional points with that is one, some trees actually produce a compound that calls for other insects or other bacteria to come and defend them from whatever's attacking them, which is, I think is really cool. And two, the way that I kind of think of the difference between the plant and animal immune system is that, and defensive system, is that if you think about yourself and a mosquito's coming at you, you would normally just slap it, right? You can kill the mosquito, stop the mosquito from attacking you. Plants are like us, but if we were out stretched out like a scarecrow and we weren't able to move and we have a mosquito attacking and sucking our blood and we can't do anything to fight it, right? Whereas a plant might be able to just chemicals into the site where the mosquito is attacking and poison the mosquito itself. So it's similar in a way that the plant is able to generate what it needs to defend itself. Like we're able to generate antibodies against the coronavirus, but it focuses in a different way. It targets a different way how it defends itself. Now, when I was an undergrad, I did a summer research project for Raman spectroscopy. What you're talking about is with mass spectroscopy, and it's a little bit similar. However, I'm well aware that there are different areas in the peaks of these graphs that you're seeing, and there are so many different places to distinguish what compounds you're looking at. How precise is the mass spectrometry that you're working with? It's actually incredibly precise, and it's incredibly powerful what you can do with it. I've heard stories that if you wear a cream in the facility one day versus not, it's actually going to be picked up in your samples just from it being around it. Additionally, this technique is able to really separate out individual compounds from each other and then look at the elemental formulas, the components, in a way that allows us to make very targeted guesses about what the compounds may be, which can then be later resolved through NMR and nuclear magnetic resonance, which provides a full confirmation to what the metabolite identification is. I'll take your word for it that's as precise as you're saying. Now, before this interview, I've never actually heard of the ash tree before, and I wanted to ask, what are some common uses for the ash tree? I've heard of like maple, oak, and even pine trees, but what do people use ash trees for? There are four main species of ash tree that are under threat from the emerald ash borer. The most famous is green ash, which was used in cities and towns to line streets, They were phenomenal. They were salt tolerant. They were water tolerant. They were drought tolerant. They were just, and they grew very fast and looked very beautiful. At some point, they were 10 to 15% of all the street trees. The Midwest were green ash and also white ash, which is very famous for being baseball bat material. And so a lot of baseball bat makers are having to source other woods for that purpose now because white ash is running out. Another one is black ash which is famous for its use in Native American baskets and other work. And then the last one is pumpkin ash, which is also known as swamp ash. And that's used for guitars. And so there's actually a number of guitar makers that we're looking for to help support some of our collaborators to protect their supplies of pumpkin ash going into the future. Well, that's really interesting. I had no idea about the versatility of these ash trees. Many of you may know from listening to our episodes that Daniel and I are both from Florida, and we don't have ash trees down there. Now, you just mentioned you're trekking across these states with your Honda Accord to these different universities. What is it like working with these various collaborators, too? It's been an absolutely amazing experience to work with and learn from all these wonderful people. There's Dr. A. Daniel Jones up at MSU. There's Dr. Uh, Jennifer Cook who's at the Forest Research Station in Delaware, Ohio, who's 
at the forefront of collecting and saving the green ash. And then there's Dr. Meg Staten at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And then there's my own mentor, Dr. Gina Maris-Severson at the University of Notre Dame. And so it's been really a pleasure and honor to work with all these phenomenal researchers. Well, that's wonderful that you're working with people who have such a diverse skill set, and it sounds like it's a really fulfilling experience. Thank you so much for talking to us about your research, and I hope that you're able to find ways to increase the defenses of these ash trees to then eradicate them. Thanks again for joining us today, Rob. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.